1: Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge, one of the greatest to ever do it, Colin McFall of the mighty, the unbelievably, the godly Cox Bar is on the show today. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to send me an email, you can head over to the email address, Turn at a punk podcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page, and both of those are run by my brother and show producer, guest. Booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all your hard work. And he will get your message to me. If you want to contact me directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at Left4Damian. If you want to support the show, the best way of supporting the show is by telling everyone you know that you love this podcast. Uh, And also, you could subscribe to it. Give it a five-star review if you're listening to it on that podcast app that, that Apple does. Otherwise, just tell, tell all your friends, let everyone know, know that you enjoy this podcast and we're out here doing it each and every week for your enjoyment and they should check it out. And that's how, that's how you grow these things. That's how you make it bigger. You know, just, just spread the word, spread the word. Speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket anymore. And they came on board in support of this thing, and it's been amazing ever since. They let me book whoever I want to book, and I just keep doing what I do. So thank you, everyone at Vans, and check out all the amazing House of Vans events popping up all the time. There's there's been some in Philadelphia recently. There was an amazing run of them in Chicago, a legendary run of shows in New York, or in Brooklyn, I should say. Um, more there's just so many of these great parties, and and you know, and so many great more podcasts that they support. So thanks, Vans. Thank you so much for, for doing it. You know, I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, speaking of appreciating, I got to appreciate all the amazing Patreon supporters that we have at the Turned Out of Punk Patreon. If you miss Footnotes, that's where Footnotes lives now. It's in Patreon land and there's also other merch and things like that you can get. So just go over to patreon.com slash Turned support this thing, allow me to keep doing it and, and to do it better, hopefully. Hopefully a little bit better. I got a new computer, which means I could keep doing it because the old computer died. So that would have been a disaster for trying to make podcasts without a computer. I don't I don't think you can do it. It might be the one thing that you need to do a podcast. You don't need talent. You don't need uh, any sort of uh, skill set. You just need a computer. And so thank you to the patrons for allowing me to have one of those. So, uh, And that's it. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show... Huge guess, huge guess. It's huge shout out to our friends at Mutiny PR, the homie, Vanessa. She reached out and said, would you like Colin from Coxbar on your podcast? And Tristan was like, absolutely. And I was like, holy shit. Cause this is one of those people that, that, you know, saw it all unfold right before their eyes. And from an amazing vantage point of being in one of the best punk bands ever. Like if you are not familiar with this punk band, if you've just lumped them in as being, Oh, they're just a street punk band. They're just a noise band, They're just this, they're just that. Listen to this band. They will blow your mind. Like they have some, some songs, like just some of my favorite songs ever, ever. And uh, yeah, what an, what an amazing opportunity this was. Unfortunately, there were some connection issues in the beginning, so it's a little shorter than I would have liked, but that, that just leaves more reason to have a part two. Right. We all know that's how this thing goes. Like, we're spoiler alert, we're building up to the fact that I'm going to ask a person back for a part two. Uh, and believe me, there's <laughs> lots more to get to. Oh, this is a good one. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore because this one's too good to uh, waste time with an intro that goes on forever with as I'm going on forever with this intro. So here is Colin McFall of the. The Gods, Cox Bar on Turned Out a Punk. Colin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Damien, you're you're most welcome. Most welcome. Well, as I was just relaying to you off air, you are a massive, massive influence on me. And your your journey and your band's journey, I think, is is sort of the the perfect journey to kind of, you know document on this show so uh yeah let's i'm really excited as you can hear (laughs) there's no need to be
2: just relax take some deep
1: breaths (laughs) oh i will i will believe me i'm gonna get more excited as we go on i assure you (laughs) um but colin i gotta start this off the way they all start off which is how'd you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre
2: (sighs) yeah well i mean we we were performing as a band if you like you know before punk started Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we, we formed in 72. Um, and I was 16 at that stage. You know, we've, we've had the band ever since, ever since then. Mm -hmm. Um, the first real exposure to it, I guess, was, I remember it vividly actually. I mean, we, we were on tour with a small faces. who were like my favorite band of all time. This was in March. I'm I'm crap with dates, right? So you you have to check all this out, but March 77. Okay. And, um, and I heard the Jam single in the city. I was sitting and I was sitting, waiting to to go down to, to do a sound check or something. And I heard this song and I thought, fucking hell, that is that is different.' Um, and it all sort of evolved from there. I mean, there was all the pistols things going on in West London, which hadn't yet sort of really materialized. Mm-hmm. But I remember vividly at the end of that Small Faces tour, we were. Because we were signed to a record label, every record label had to have a number of punk bands. Okay, you know? and I'm, I'm I'm doing the finger thing. You know, I know you can't see it, but they they didn't really care what it was, but they had to have within their within their roster, they had to have a number of punk bands. And the label that we were signed to, there was us Slaughter and the dogs and Adam and the Ants. The problem we had was that we we didn't really buy into all the punk thing. I mean, for us, punk has always been attitude rather than fashion, but. Uh, um, one of our very first meetings with a record company around this time, they said that you know punk's the next big, big thing. And we said, "Well, what do you want us to do differently?" And they <laughs> said, "Well, you got you got to wear these clothes." We said, well, no, "We're not going to wear those clothes. That's 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 never that's never going to happen." Yeah, and it, and it sort of went on from there. And we we've we've been sort of you know bashing heads with some people's perception of what punk is ever ever since that day. And that that in itself, we sit around and talk about it. That in itself seems we've got you know a, a punk a punk ethos way to go about things. You know, we don't we don't necessarily to this day we still don't do things that we don't want to do. We still don't agree with things we don't want to agree with. Um, and so our, our our first initial exposure to it was being told you've got to do this and us tell them to fuck off. So that's, <laughs> that's you know, it's, it's stayed that way ever since, I'm afraid.
1: Well, yeah, and I think and the other thing is, you know, your attitude is what informs punk's attitude because, you know, like, you're the band that kind of everyone follows in a lot of ways too, like, you know, and this is the ethos that you kind of put forth, the fashion you kind of put forth, like, even though the anti-fashion in this case. Yeah. It, it really inspires, you know, Bands going forward from there, but like what inspired you know yourselves at you know obviously' the age of sixteen, you're pretty young, but at to start the band at that age, it was a school thing like
2: like you know like a lot of bands, um we wanted to get girls that was the easiest way to do it, or so we thought we weren't particularly successful at it, mm-hmm. but um it was uh, in the u k at the time it was sort of early early seventies seventy two so it was it was T Rex, it was Slade, it was Bowie, it was all that glam rock stuff, mm-hmm. um, and that's the sort of stuff that we were playing at the time. That's that's um, that was our influences from sort of 70, 72 onwards. Um, we just we we've always been first and foremost a, a bunch of mates, you know, just just a group of pals hanging around having a beer. So even in those days that's what it was without without any great ambition for the future or you know the best way to go forward so we never we never really planned anything we just we just we just tried to copy the songs that we saw on tv you know and some of the styles of bands that we saw on tv and and it wasn't very successful to be honest <laughs> i mean we 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 weren't meant to be a glam rock band as simple as that yeah. although people do say that you can hear that influence in some of the songs, you know, from, from particularly the early stuff, I guess, the early recordings.
1: Well, yeah, going to the early stuff, like right off the bat, were you guys doing originals or was it covers in the early no, years? No, covers, covers at first.
2: Yeah. I mean, always covers. We used to play at a youth club down in, down in East London. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I say I was 16, the other lads were a year older than me, so they were 17. And, um... There was a, a girls' school just across the road from where from where we used to play, mm-hmm. and on a Friday night, you know, we'd 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 um, we'd get a couple hundred of people in this place, um, and we were doing all those songs. You yeah, we did we did Under My Wheels by Alice Cooper, we did Jean Genie by Bowie, we did all you know all those sorts of things, some Slade and T Rex and Sweet and that sort of stuff, because they were the songs that everybody knew,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it was only. I don't know, probably a couple of years after that, that, um, that we started to write our own stuff. Didn't always do anything with it, to be honest. I mean, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks back, and we were talking about shock troops, and shock troops just sort of rolled out, if you, if you can imagine. But when we got an invitation to record the album back in, whenever it was, 82 or something, all these songs had been pent up and held in, and it, it took us about you know a week to get the whole thing started and finished. Just because they they'd been there from that um, from that early time,
1: so that's what I was going to ask. Like, is that early stuff that you guys are writing is that you know where the band would be sound wise? You know, a few years later. Say so that again. Like so those early songs that you're writing, those are the songs that would kind of make up the early stuff that you guys were recording. Yeah, absolutely. Wow,
2: uh, absolutely. And and but I mean, you have you have to understand there are so many so many rubbish songs that no one's ever gonna <laughs> ever gonna get to hear. You know, I mean our our sixth member of the band, Will, who's our, our road manager, is my oldest friend, you know, he says to me that I've got this reel to reel tape of one of the first rehearsals that you guys did. He said, And it's toe curling. <laughs> he said it is he said it is it is he said, and one of these days, if you don't treat me properly, I'm gonna bring it out and I'm gonna, you know, let let the Will listen to it. So yeah, <laughs> so some some of those songs were, were awful. You yeah. Know, we we used to we used to play at the Marquee Club in London. We used to have a friend who was the sort of the booker there, and um, he used to put us on any support slot he had that he hadn't filled already, and we used to support some some you know great bands of the day, mm-hmm. and and um, we used to just play this dross, you know this really <laughs> this really cliched horrible type stuff, you know. So it was all a, it was all a learning your trade, you know. It was all
1: you know rites of passage something, but uh, we got there in the end. What informed those early lyrics? Like what was, you know, because like, you know, you say you're the sound, you know, you can hear the glam kind of influence there, but the lyrics are decidedly not like Alice Cooper.
2: No, I mean a lot a lot of the a lot of those early songs um were written by Burge, the bass player. Mm. And and Steve's you know, Steve, if you, if you talk to Burge about songwriting, he he doesn't necessarily want to talk to you about the melody or the mid-lates or the choruses, you know, it's it's the lyrical content that he – is particularly proud of, and a lot of those songs are stories, and you know they're, they're they're true things that we happened or happened across or we encountered, or you know, Sunday stripper is we used to go to this pub every every Sunday and, and watch the girls dance. You know, it was it was it was as simple as that. We came home and wrote a song about it. You know, Riot Squad. We 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 knew a guy that we was at school with that that if you like defected to the other side and and became a member of the police force and. Right score was written about that guy. And, and so it was, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, the songs that we've written are, are actual true life, you know, true life stories that we've, we've
1: encountered or we've, um, you know, we've, we've come across. Well, yeah, because it's, you know, it's, it's authentically street rock and roll and that's what it's labeled as street rock and roll, but it is, yep. you know, it's a, one of the first times in a long time at that point, I guess that music was kind of coming from a real reality perspective again.
2: Yeah, I think I think so. I think so. I mean, the, you, you can only write so many love songs, can't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's it's you, you've got to you've got to write things about you've got to write songs about what you know and yeah. and and people you've met and stories you can tell. And I think the one thing about Cox Bowery is you know that that's that's always been the case. That you can go through any of our albums and, and, and pick out most of the songs. And most of those songs, uh, we, you know, we have a story about them, and we'll we'll tell you the history to them, and where they came from, and who those people were, and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, some some we won't because some of them are um, a, a secret. You know, some of them are, are our observations about people that we don't particularly want to, you know, come across <laughs> again. So you know, we'll, we'll write a song about them, but we won't give him the glory of um, saying this song's about you, fella. You know, so
1: absolutely, so- yeah. Were bands like you know the Pink Fairies and the Deviants were they had influences at all or was that kind of like a completely separate world?
2: The Pink Fairies is, is one of Steve Bruce's favorite bands. Okay, you know, it's, you know, it's, you know, he phoned he me the other day, and um, again he was talking about fairies wear boots and things like this, and I haven't got a clue what he's talking about, but <laughs> he, he was he was um, you know very heavily into all that that sort of stuff. I mean things like MC Five never never really crossed. The Atlantic at that time, as far as we were concerned. Yeah, I mean, our, our influences were people you know, bands like Humble Pie, you know, because Marriott was, you know, such a great singer, um, and 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 people like that. I mean, when we first started, it was only three years after Woodstock, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what people don't sort of appreciate. And punk was only sort of, you know, eight years after Woodstock. So it was a huge, it was a huge turn, huge turn of events, and a, a change in a change in times.
1: Were there like uh, any crossovers between the scene that you kind of were playing towards? Like obviously, you're playing with the small faces ultimately, but like in the pub rock stuff that was happening, like Doctor Feelgood and all those bands.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we used to go and see Feelgood all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think we ever played with them, to be honest. But there was a really healthy sort of London pub circuit where you could, you know, you could go out seven nights a week if you wanted to. There, there were always good bands out there, you know, guaranteed to give to give you. Uh, um, to give you a good night out yeah. i mean where we lived in eastern london there were there were three or four pubs where it would just be dedicated to music the whole the whole week through and we would just pick our nights and go down and either watch a really good covers band or if you know someone else you know someone like the field were playing there you know, we go down and see them and that sort of thing but there was never any crossover in, in terms of us being in the band and them being in the band we were much too insignificant for that.
1: No, yeah, no, but I meant just like, were you were you guys playing with like Brizzly Schwartz and all those kind of bands, or is that?
2: No, I, well, again, no of them, but I don't think we, our paths ever crossed. I mean, mm. you know, there there were we played with bands like Status Quo. Oh, yeah. Um, um well, I mean, this is some some weird names, but again, where where we live, there was a there was a pub that put on bands every weekend, and we quite often get a call to go down there and and, and open up open up the show for for that that particular night so you know we played with motorhead down there when they first formed yeah Yeah. i mean we played with you know manfred Mann's earth band and it didn't really matter who who it was a gig for us it was like a paid rehearsal Mm -hmm. so it it didn't really matter whether we were a fit for the main band or not and Mm -hmm. it didn't really matter whether it was motorhead or manfred Mann. it was just like an opportunity for us to get out and play and maybe make some
1: make some new friends you know and what a way to kind of cut your chops as a live band is having oh, to Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah,
2: unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and we met some some guys, you know, doing that who influenced the way that we behave as well because we remember being treated really well by some of these bands and we, we remember being treated really poorly by some of these bands.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that has sort of um, influenced the way that we, you know, we now behave to, to other bands that are on the bill when we, when we play.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, we, we try to give them as much help and assistance as we can if they need it, if they want it. Um but you know, we we met some right arseholes in our time, but it was just as you say, it was just learning learning your trade.
1: Yeah, like I'm always fascinated by kind of like that pre, you know, punk explosion, pre, you know, ultimately the new wave kind of thing that happens, like scene that there would have been in London. Like, was it mainly just sort of like sort of disparate pub scenes, kind of bands playing together, or did was did you feel part of any sort of larger band community at that time?
2: We we certainly never felt part of any any community or anything at all. We we, we yeah. were well, almost by our own decision, really. We were we were out on a limb. Mm-hmm. you know a, a lot of this was happening in in west london mm-hmm. um and we were well and truly out out to the east side of town so we're, while we were happy we doing our own little thing around there um all the all the all the press and all the publicity was being centered around you know what was happening with bands like the pistols and the clash and people like that um uh, completely away from from where we were where we were operating
1: I guess going back before this, how did you get into music yourself? Like, did you grow up in a household where, you know, was it like a music-loving household, or did you kind of hear it yeah. the radio?
2: Yeah, no, I, I have two, two older brothers and, and an older sister. Um, and, you know, my upbringing was listening to Tamla Motown and, and the early Stax stuff and, and Aretha Franklin and people like that. I mean, my, my brother is just slightly older than me. He has the most fantastic Tamla seven inch vinyl collection because every every friday he would when he got paid from work he would go out and buy the latest tamla single that came out and all friday night we'd be subjected to <laughs> listen listening him play it on his dance set with the arm off you know so it would just play on repeat all the time and time and time so you know so by the end of the night i knew every word to the confusion you know it, yeah. it was just one of, it was just one of those things you know but yeah, I mean, grew up with that. My, my, my oldest brother was a mod and, you know, he had all the, he had the Moet suits and the Parkers and the, and the Vespa GS, you know, and, and although they weren't technically musical, uh, it was always a, a musical household. Yeah. My dad, my dad used to sing in the pubs and that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, that, that's probably why I'm a singer because I was too lazy to learn an instrument.
1: <laughs> so you, you said your dad sings as well?
2: He did when he was alive, bless him. Yeah, yeah. He used, yeah, yeah. Used, yeah. I mean, when I, mean, I remember being a kid and being taken down to the sit outside the pub with a um, with a packet of chips and a and a, um, a lemonade, and you could hear him on the mic murdering some
1: song inside, you know. So, <laughs> whatever whatever particular song that was, he was he was ruining that one, you know. <laughs> Um, so, where did you kind of go when you went to music yourself? Was it just through you know stuff you were hearing on the radio? Like, why did you pick sort of the more glammy stuff that was happening at that time?
2: Really, because that's 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 the best of what was happening. I mean, you, you yeah. had you had you, you had that, that, that was almost it was almost accessible. You, can, you could go and see. I mean, you had you had the bands like Led Zeppelin who were you know by far the biggest band of of the time
0: mm-hmm.
2: and every time they rolled into town you'd probably go and see them um but stuff that we could really relate to was um was all the glam stuff because because that was again in itself as as was punk it was that was something that was totally different um because no one had ever seen anything like that before you know with the platform shoes and the glitter jackets and the the star eyeliner and stuff you know it was all it was all new and it was stuff that your parents hated as much as they as much as they hated punk stuff you know yeah um punk had no respect and 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 these these glam bands you know they were they were just dressed like something your dad wouldn't like so you know straight away you aligned yourself to it because it because it pissed off your parents
1: (laughs) (laughs) um do you remember the first time you came across like glam music
2: I don't, to be honest, not yeah. not spe- not specifically. I mean, it, there was it was just a a, a general tide of things in, you know, from mm-hmm. around seventy one onwards, really, R- right up right up until seventy five, I guess. And then we had a couple of years of things like the Stylistics and the, the Philly Sound and all this sort of stuff. And then then punk came along and kicks everybody up the ass.
1: It kind of makes sense too, because like you know your band sound is ultimately like, you know, the two influences kind of coming together. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. People have said that before. Yeah. Like it it really, you know, and I guess, you know, once again, it's a sound that would go on to become defined as punk, but you're, you know, ultimately creating it before punk is defined itself. But it it really is like, you know, once again, it's that return to kind of like, you know, real music in a weird way, even though glam is once again, so fantastical.
2: It's great. I mean, uh, everything got lumped in, you know, to the, to the punk genre, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you listen to stuff by the Buzzcocks, I mean, beautiful, beautiful songs, beautiful lyrics, you know, great melodies, great stories, not played at a million miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Buzzcocks got called a punk band, but just because it was easy for them to be categorized as such with everybody else. You know, if you listen to the pistol stuff, the pistols weren't playing at Ramones speed, the Ramones, the Ramones played at Ramones speed. Nobody else did.
1: Well, even in the Ramones, in the beginning, didn't play at Ramones. No,
2: no, too. exactly. And, and at the end, they certainly did.
1: Yeah, at the end, they it certainly speeded a. Yeah. Oh my gosh, a frightening speed at sometimes. But uh, <laughs> what was the first concert you remember going to, other than your father? Oh my goodness, um, I don't, I don't honestly
2: know. I can't, I can't pick out one. It would have been one of the one of the local pubs. In I mean, at the time, you had to be. Um, well, you still do actually. 18 to get into a, to get in and drink in a pub,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but we used to go down there at 15 16, and 16. It was probably one of the local pubs, like the Bridge House, or um, there was a pub called the World's End, which was in um, Forest Gate Hackney Way. That sort of way. We used to go down there and uh, watch bands as well. And it was really just a case of of us trying to sneak in unnoticed, get a, get a beer, and, and keep quiet and watch the bands. Yeah, you know, the same way as you used to try to do when you was 15, try to get into an X-rated movie. You yeah. get to the same thing. You hope, you hope you get in and hope no one noticed you and you know, realise you was only 15 years old.
1: Yeah, just play it cool, and no one will see it's a kid. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. But I mean, we you know we used to, it was our main thing. We used to do it all the time. As I said earlier, we you know we had the guy that works on the back door at the Marquee Club in in Soho in London, and we used to give him a special knock on the door, and he'd open it up and let us in for nothing and that sort of thing. So we saw loads and loads and loads of bands, all, all of whom I guess in one way or another turned out to to be you know influences in in some way, shape or form.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Were there were there any bands at the time that you remember particularly liking that you got to see? Around then, you know, even bands that didn't wind up recording or, or going on to anything major.
2: I, I I still maintain to this day, when asked the question, "What was your favorite ever gig?" It was I saw ACDC on their first ever tour, oh, yeah. play at the play at the Marquee Club in London. Ne- never seen anything like it. You know, with Bon Scott, they were they just blew us all away. We just all stood there with our you know with their mouths open. Geez, <laughs> this is this is fantastic, <laughs> you know. And the Marquee was such a place that. You know, you know those those clubs you go into where the, the carpet has got so ruined over the years that your feet stick to it and you can't move <laughs> and that sort of. Thing. Well, it was like that. Yes. And it was like a shower running off the ceiling with a sweat, you know. And there was uh, there was Angus and Bon Scott, you know. One when we Bon Scott was no, I saw Angus was on Bon Scott's shoulders and and you know he was walking in amongst the crowd. It was just it was just without a doubt the best gig I'd, I'd seen up until then, and I'm still waiting to uh, to find one that takes its place now.
1: Uh, well, I guess speaking of amazing sort of gigs, did you see the Dolls, New York Dolls, when they came over the first time?
2: Uh, I didn't. No, again, again, Steve Bruce, our drummer, big, very big New York Dolls fan. Yeah, yeah. So I think Steve definitely went to see them, and, and again, it, it was almost after the effect because I mean, that was across to us. That, that was a a late arrival on the on the glam scene. Mm-hmm. So although we could appreciate what the Dolls were doing um it was it was just before just that period just before punk Mm -hmm. so the the glam stuff had finished so we thought oh he's a he's an american band who want to jump on the on the on the glam band (laughs) yeah yeah you know but obviously that wasn't the case
1: um what like were there labels or recording contract opportunities before deca for for the band
2: no, even, even Decker wasn't an opportunity really. If, yeah, if we're honest, I mean, we, it, we was, we were signed to Decker because, um, our manager, uh, I'm doing that thing with the fingers again. Our manager, <laughs> um, had a, a, an artist who was with that label who had a number one single. So he almost got us on there, uh, on the back of this other guy's success. Okay. and, 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 Tried to tailor us into the punk band thing that, that Decker wanted. Mm-hmm. But you know, the story was quite ironic that, that Daryl, our rhythm guitarist now, it's his dad who worked at Deco, actually signed us the label.
1: Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, I know. An
2: incredible coincidence. I mean, when we, when we first came to the States in 2000 and played in CBGB, Daryl's dad flew out and, and came to the gig. And um, if we know him from somewhere, where do we know him from? You know, who, who is this? He's so familiar. And it was Daryl's dad who worked for the record label at the time.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's like a, yeah. a, a I know. confluence. Full circle. <laughs> um, going back before, I guess, you, you got signed to DECA, there was a time where, you know, you were approached by Malcolm McLaren, right? Yeah, True. Was, was that like, was there a point where you felt like the band was going to sign with him or is that just something that's been kind of hyped up? No,
2: no, 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 no. It, it was, it was, it was quite a, um, a brief meeting. Um, it was, it was literally a case of, we heard that, you know, this thing, you know, with the sex pistols was going on. It was, it was, it was being formulated almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bass player Burge and one of our roadies at the time went up to the Kings Road and said to McLaren look if you want the real McCoy you've got, you got to come and see this band
0: mm-hmm.
2: and to his credit you know he, he came from West London to East London and watched us play a rehearsal in a in a upstairs of a pub but you know McLaren came in with this guy who had spurs and bondage trousers and once we'd all stopped laughing you know we we, <laughs> we said what, what what are we doing you know what, what's going on here and um you know, again, McLaren said, you know, I'd like to come and support this this band, this new band I'm putting together, you know, and, and we'll see how it goes from there. And, you know, we we tell the story about he didn't get his round of drinks in, you know, so that was the end of it. I mean, it wasn't quite like that, but, I mean, that was certainly a true element. It was, You know, we sat there parched, uh, having played three of these worst possible songs to the guy who was going to run the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Um, and you could tell he wasn't impressed, mm. and... um and then the answer, said, "Well, look, this, this clearly ain't going to work. I mean, you know, we ain't going to dress up like this clown here. You know, we're here in our Dr. And Martins and our in our jungle greens, and, and that's that's all we've ever done. That's all we're ever going to do. And so we, we agreed to uh, not take it any further."
1: Yeah. Well, it's like, I guess the it's, once again it's, it comes back to the realness, right? Like w- what you're talking about is very much you know put on kind of thing.
2: You know, you don't, you never, you never plan these things. And, you know, there are people who, who try to be awkward and try to be difficult. We were just so wrongly, if you like, self-centered that we didn't, we didn't care about what anybody else thought. Mm -hmm. We just thought this is what's best for us. And, and, you know, we were, we were five, six mates and that was it. And we were never going to do anything that jeopardized that. And even if somebody had said off that, I really think we should give this type, this guy the time of day, it was never going to happen. Because it was so it was so removed from the way that we were naturally, that um, we were never going to you know dress up for anybody or put on a show or put on a fake accent or you know be something we're not, and it's something we've always tried to maintain even to this day. You know, if you come see Cockspur now, it's it's we're the same people that we were all those years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Once again, though, I think it comes back to the songs, right? Like, I think that's why your band does survive the test of time, is because yeah, those- without a doubt you know, what were the, what were the big, you know, turning points you feel as a band songwriting? Like what you are the songs that stand out?
2: Well, you have to understand that when we recorded Shock Troops, which is in about 82, Mm -hmm. um, the story behind that is that we were given the money to record England Belongs to Me as a single. And we hadn't written England Belongs to Me. And, and Steve, Steve and Berger got into this record company and goes, we've got this great song called Inglebongs to Me," and The guy goes, great, I love it. You know, write it and we'll, we'll, we'll record it and we'll give you some money for it. So they had, then had to go away and write the song. <laughs> so they, they sold the idea on the title alone. So then they had to go home and, and Berger wrote the song and went back in. The guy said, yeah, I like it. I'll record it. Here's X amount of money. And with that money, we recorded Shock Troops, un- unbeknownst to the record company. And um, we had all this in, in, the, in the, you know, in, in the bag, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, "Okay, I'd like, I'd like to hear England now." And we said, "Yeah, there's England, and we've also got this 12-inch." And the guy went, well, "When did you record that?" We said, well, "At the same time, because we, we did it in about a week or something." All of those songs in that album are songs that we play now because people can relate in some way to those songs, or they mean something to them, or they've influenced them in some way, or they're just like. To sing along with the catchy, catchy hooks and choruses, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, that's it, it's it's all about it's all about the songs, and and also, I dare say, our ability to still deliver those songs. Because we've always said when we when we can't do that anymore, that's that's when we'll stop.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, people come, people want to come and hear those songs, but they want to come and hear those songs played well. And then if we can't do that anymore, then we won't do it. Simple as that.
1: Well, I think it's also being authentic and being real, you know, like, the, you know, the band is, you know, like everyone I know that's worked with you, everyone I know that's played with you, you know, speaks, you know, about how, you know, it's still that band, you know, it's still like a real thing. It's not just a bunch of guys putting on an act, you know, for a paycheck.
2: You know, the way we do it, there's, there's, there's six of us, there's five in the band. And as I, like there's, there's, there's Will who takes care of our roadie and stuff and things like that. And, and someone's paying for us to go somewhere in the world and, Sing some songs and put us in a hotel and ask to have some fun and you know meet some new friends. You know that's fantastic. That's 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 the best possible story you can tell. I mean, there's no airs and graces about us. You know, we we say to people the most awkward thing we've had to do recently. I'll, I'll tell you this: it's it's really weird. is like you know these signings you do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We, we did one at Riot Fest the other day. It was nice. I mean, the guy was great and, you know, made these p- brilliant posters and things like that. It's so awkward for us. Yeah. Because we would just want to say, well, look, I've got a case of beer here. Come, come and sit down and tell me how your day's been. You know, tell me about your family and this sort of stuff. And we're much, we would much rather do that mm-hmm. than a great big long line of people saying, side next, sign next. You know, we're just not into that, really. That's, that's not us. So it's right. We are. We are the same people we've always been, and and we will maintain that. And there've been many a times when someone has stepped out a line, or one of us has got delusions above their station or whatever, and they've had a severe slapping down from the rest of us. <laughs> you know, we say, "Listen, whoa, 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 we don't do that." You know, that's not like us. You know, we don't, we don't. You know, we saw it. I don't know if you saw it or not, but we 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 stuck something on our Instagram page the other day of um. Of the bus that we that we used, we was at Riot Fest, and it was like the fucking happy bus, you know. It was all full of graffiti and shit next to all these uh, nightliners, all the other bands turned up in, you know. <laughs> and that that to us is hilarious. That's the sort of thing we really like doing, you know. If we don't we don't need to all that posing.
1: Well, we're, we're we're not like that. Uh, going back to that tour with the small faces, like what did they make yeah. of the kind of changing? shape of music that was kind of happening at the time or the changing face music. Like, were they, were they cool to you guys and who wasn't even in the lineup at that point?
2: It was, uh, it was the original lineup apart oh, from, awesome. apart from Ronnie Lane. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it was Marriott, Ian McLagan, Kenny Jones, P.P. P. Arnold. And I had Rick Wills, So I think played in foreigner later on or, or was he in foreigner at the time. I think he, he, Rick wills played bass on that. Tour, lovely fella. Okay. Um, they talked to us really well. I mean, th- this was a comeback thing for them. So they were doing their greatest hit show as such, um, which all the crowd, all, that's all they wanted to hear.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But they were so they were so gracious to us. It was un- unbelievable. And, you know, th- these were my heroes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, a- again, another story is we, we turned up at the, the first gig on the first night, pulled into the car park, and we had a, a big old red diesel GPO van. You know that post office van. And that's that's what we use, and you could hear it coming for about a mile away before it actually arrives. You know, before you saw it. That and the clouds of smoke that this thing threw out. We pulled into the we pulled into the car park, and they had these two forty foot trailers. You know, and they said, "So, what you're coming on tour with us in that?" And we went, "Well, yeah." And they said, "No, I don't think so." So well, why not? You know, it, just, it goes. It's all right, You know, it's cheaper. It, they said, "What have you got?" We said, "We've got two four by twelve cabinets and a couple of amps and some drums down there, wrapped in blankets. I haven't got any cases, but wrapped in blankets." The guy said, "Stick them on the back of our truck." We went, really? He went, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah. Take, take your, van, take your red van home, because <laughs> that, that won't make it around the UK, and um, and you can just, you know, you can just come in with us." So we did. So we did two weeks on the road with them, on their bus, you know, with their their roadies, umping our gear in and out all over the place that's amazing yeah very gracious very nice people for for, first night we were there the dressing room door opened they came in with this kitchen tray with a mountain of cocaine and we went (laughs) and and we went they said welcome to the tour we went actually we don't you know because we we were on our asses from east end of london we you know we were signing on we had no money we hadn't seen cocaine and we said we don't do drugs and they went really we said no he said well thank you very much. It's more for us. And out, <laughs> and out they went again. That you know there oh. it was. But no, but very kind, very nice. You know, some people bring you cupcakes and they brought us they brought cocaine.
1: <laughs> that is the most small faces thing I think I can imagine happening. So yeah. I don't know. Somehow fitting yeah. in a yeah. sad way. All
2: good. All good. Yeah, all good.
1: <laughs> um where like other than the jam, were there other bands that you kind of felt like eventually you wind up on Razor Records, obviously, but were there other yeah. bands that you felt eventually that were more kind of in line with what you were thinking, not approaching this as a way of just dressing up.
2: Uh, there, were, there were lots of bands that, that we loved. I mean, the clash is still one of my favorite bands. I mean, although, you know, they were in the nicest possible way, like a manufactured band, you know, they were, they were, they were a boy band. They were put together yeah. as, the pist- as the pistols were, you know, but still yeah. you can't, you can't, can't decry what they achieved, you know, f- fantastic, fantastic songs and albums and, and performances. <laughs> um, so no, I mean it's not. It's not really until you had almost a second wave. We had bands like the Cockney Rejects coming on, who who were the real deal, mm-hmm. as far as as far as we were concerned. You know, there, there was a, there was a lot of stuff that was in that first wave of punk that was almost bandwagon jumping. It was almost like anybody can do it, and that, that was the that was the spirit of the whole thing. Of course, was that you know as as the saying of the time was you know you know three calls right you, there you go you're in a punk band mm-hmm. that and that's that's how it was there, there weren't many of them that we actually liked to be honest um there aren't many other albums i've got i've got today i'm mean, gonna all the clash stuff obviously and i have got all the pistol stuff and things like that but i mean there were lots of bands that we never crossed paths with and there were lots of bands who came and, and went you know within the blink of an eye but, um, so there were a lot of shit bands, but there were also some, some classic bands that came out around that time. And I mentioned the Buzzcocks again just for their songwriting ability. Mm-hmm. You know, X Ray Specs, brilliant, you know, brilliant songs. Brilliant, brilliant songs.
1: Yeah, like who would you, in that sort of first wave of bands, because, like, you know, as you're saying, like when Cockney Rejects and, and that second wave of bands kind of show up, I can, you know, I can picture the flyers with yourselves on it, but who would you find yourselves playing with in that sort of first wave of bands? Um,
2: well we never we never played with the clash we never played with the pistols mm-hmm. we played with the jam uh we played with chelsea um never played with the buzzcocks never played with gen x we we weren't liked basically <laughs> <Yeah. No. laughs> yeah. we're coming to the same conclusion here no one no one wanted us on board at all
1: yeah, well like you know is it once again like you're saying like it seems like you know from what you're describing and and you know things I've obviously put together myself before this that first wave it's 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 very much still like a, a fashion thing a you know like um it's still getting figured out and then in the second wave it gets much more kind of codified into something new yeah
2: i mean there there, there were there were bands that came out of that first uh, tranche, if you like that, that that went on to do great things like like susie and the banshees you know they 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 developed their own Style, yeah, you know, and and were very successful. So they obviously had some legs, but there are a lot of bands that fell by the wayside. They just that
1: were just faff and no substance, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you ever play with the Desperate Bicycles? Just out of curiosity. Okay, I don't think so. I don't think so. One of the more obscure bands, I guess, from that first wave of bands.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, no, the name doesn't ring a bell.
1: When you when you started touring out and going across, like, when was the first time that uh, you got to Europe or mainland Europe? I should say.
2: Uh that would have been after the Astoria gig, which was in about ninety three, I think. you have to forgive me, I'm terrible with dates. The Comeback? Gig? Yeah, huh? The Comeback? The gig? Comeback, yeah, the Astoria one. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean after, after I remember vividly we we played that gig and um we were sitting upstairs having a having a quick beer and a sandwich. And we were talking to a guy called Arthur from the Lurkers. And he said, you should go to Europe. And we said, well, well why would you want to go to Europe? He said, no, it's in Europe. People don't know it's in London, for fuck's sake. What? And he said, no, no, you should go to Europe. It's really good fun. It's a really great scene, et cetera, et cetera. So it just happened that um, we were approached by a small German label to, to do an album, mm-hmm. um, which was Guilty as Charged. And um, we toured on the back of that. And uh, the, you know it, it was it was well an eye opener. It was fantastic. I mean, we did we did 14 dates in 16 days. I think we played about four or five bona fide clubs. The rest were sort of squats and someone's garden and school halls and things like that. But it was um, it was a brilliant experience. We still talk about it now. So real, be- real good, real good fun.
1: Sorry, be- before you got back together, then did you have any sort of appreciation of kind of like the the kind of like. Cult around the band that had been kind of growing.
2: No, we had no, we had no idea. Oh wow! And, that, and that's the honest truth. We, 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 we were approached to do the Astoria gig, mm-hmm. and and we said, "Are you mad? <laughs> what? Well, why? Why would you want to do that?" He said, oh, "I think people would be interested." And he said, "I'll, I'll pay you. What was Three hundred quid." And we went, "Well, okay. Well, it'll be a story to tell our grandchildren or whatever some later stage, but you know." You're going to lose your money, my friend. And um, the Astoria gig was put on, and it was us and the Addicts and, and a few other bands as well Splodge, I think, and um, Daryl's original band, I think the Elite, all the Elite played as well. Anyway, so it was the first experience ever of us turning up and people knowing the songs.
0: Mm.
2: And the one thing that we've tried to uh, and gender since then really is, is that people come along and join in and make it make it their party, make it their night. So, you know, there will be people leaving the shows who can't talk because their voices are hoarse, and that's the first time we experienced that. They knew every word to every song that we played, which was really helpful because we didn't know most of them. <laughs> we sort of we sort of flapped our way through it, and said, oh yeah, of course, it's the mid late there when the, when the crowd started singing it. But it was but it was you know it was sold out, and and we genuinely didn't expect that to happen. And that was a, a surprise. And because what happened in the you know, in the meantime between us recording and releasing Shock Troops and that gig, we'd we'd played a few shows here and there, but it was all trouble and too much and places were getting smashed up and we thought someone's gonna get hurt. So we decided listen, this is just not worth it. I looked around my group of friends and said, Look, I don't wanna I don't wanna play a show where you're gonna get bottled or glassed or whatever. So you know what? We don't need this. And I think it was during that period of time that um shock troops grew into this sort of cult thing mm-hmm. if 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 you can you know and, and people knew the songs and so I think when it was announced that Coxray were going to play again at the astoria they they came from all over the world and it was a very it was a very hum- you know, very humbling experience you know.
1: No, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend of mine right now and I was telling him I was going to be talking to you. And he was like, Tell him I was at the comeback show. And he was. He's not just lying. I, I promise. He was there.
2: 15,000 15, people were at yeah, the comeback exactly. show, apparently. <laughs> exactly. In fact, we, we, we were so poorly rehearsed at the, the afternoon of that show, because Steve Bruce, our drummer, had a, had a pub at the time in London, which and it was about a couple of miles away from the story. So he said, oh, We still don't know these bloody songs. So we said, OK, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go down the pub and, and we'll rehearse some lunchtime. The pub's quiet, there's no one around. Because the world got out, and there were like two or 300 people waiting for us to do this thing. Now, if you talk to anybody now, yeah, I was at the pub. He couldn't have been at the pub, because that makes 5,000 people in the pub on a Sunday lunchtime. That's never going to Yeah, I was there.
1: I was definitely there. So, <laughs> well, he did so not it's... claim to be at the pub, I, I, so he's not, he's not making that bold of a claim. But he, he, was at, he was at the Astoria, though, right? He was claiming he was at the Astoria, with the yeah, guy from sweet. Bitscore Records, no less. So, No, you know, really? A small world, indeed. Yeah, yeah. there you go. There you uh, go. Um, so what, what exactly do you think changed in 92 that made it so different from like, you know, 83, like what, what did change that allowed shows to kind of happen? Like had, why did the violence subsided, do you think?
2: I think everybody got a little bit older mm-hmm. and I think, I think people had perhaps different responsibilities and it, it wasn't the thing they had to do every week. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was a period where, you know, where punk shows were quite unhealthy, you know, that they, they that they would, there would be violence, and and as well as all the the spitting and stuff that was, you know, just horrible. <laughs> and um, I think what happened in the in the you know in the meantime was just that um, people grew up somewhat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you, you still saw it occasionally. I mean, you still we still had rows We still put our guitars down and jumped off stage on more
1: than one occasion.
2: But you know, it, it was nowhere like it was um,
1: that first time round. Uh, coming back, you know, in, in 92 and then ultimately kind of when you came back, uh, like, you know, does it surprise you at kind of the impact the band has had? Like, you know, like there's there's bands that sound very much influenced by yourselves today. And like you'd I think you'd have no problem finding a scene to fit in with these days. Um, Yeah, I
2: mean, we. We find it all quite. Not embarrassing. Embarrassing is the wrong word. We find it all quite humbling, really, and mm-hmm. and we never we never lose sight of the fact of of who we are. So we we still pinch ourselves on on more than one occasion. You know, you you'll find yourself doing something and you think, is it really me here doing this? You know, playing playing to all these people, and this you know, you you, you play to you know fifteen thousand people somewhere in a field, and you think they've come to see us, you know, yeah. and then, then you feel a level of responsibility and then that makes you more, even more anxious and, you know, you, you want to make it right and things like this, but we've never, we've never taken that for granted, you know, and th- we've never, we've never turned up and, and gone through the motions. That's, that's not the way we do things. You know, we are, we are, you know, totally dedicated to making it as best a possible show as we can.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we want we want to, you know, make the songs, the ones songs that people want to hear. We've, we've we've tried to change the set so many times, and bring songs back into the set that we, maybe we haven't played for a while. But the reason they're not in the set is because they don't go down well. They're not as well liked, you know. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's like a catch twenty two. Remember one occasion we 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 always start with Riot Squad, and you know as, as soon as the intro finishes and Mickey starts playing Riot Squad, you know the place goes up and the beer flies and we're off. You know it's another party night. Mm-hmm. Well, one night we we decided no, oh, we'll change you. We'll start with something else. And there was this guy who had turned up, seen us lots of times and was there with his girlfriend and he was boasting to her about how well he knows us and things like this. And he said, I'll tell you one thing, you know, they'll start with Riot Squad, dinner. do this. And of course we didn't, and we started with Running Riot or something. <laughs> and she said, oh, I thought you knew this band. you know?" And he he came and found us afterwards and said, you bastards, you know, you, you probably let me down here because, you know, I was telling her, you know, I knew everything about you, but... So you can't win. You cannot win. You can't, so if you you know if you try and change it for the right reasons, and then
1: you can upset somebody. So you're going to start a domestic squabble. Yeah, exactly. 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 Well, given that the band, you know, like you know, you've been around for so many different waves of whatever this music is, like be it yeah. glam, be it punk, be it oi, yeah. like where do you define Cox Bar? I would never do. I never. I try not to.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I think I think the thing that that. The genre, if you like, that I think best sums us up was sort of street punk.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I never, I never really got the oi thing too much because that that tended to get a little bit um, sidetracked by other issues. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: um, punk, punk, he's punk. To me, punk is a is a is an ethos. It's not it's not about necessarily about the music or about the clothes. It's about state of mind to me. And you know, anybody can get up and do it, and they're more more than welcome to do so. And you haven't got to be brilliant. You've just got to be, you know, dedicated to what you do. Um, so, if, you know, for me, it's, it's not necessarily a, a, anything to do with um, the image that you're creating. It's, a, it's about just
1: being who you are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's, that's always been the most important thing to us.
1: Uh, Colin, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, at some point in the future, would you come on for a part two or something?
2: Yeah, love to, Damon. No, uh, no problem at all. Love uh, love the questions. I mean, we we get used to answering questions like, you know, why is there a big P in Cox's Bar and you know, what's your favorite what's your favorite color? So, you know, this is this has really been this has really been interesting and and um yeah thank you for doing the research beforehand. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Colin, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, there's plenty of room for a part two. So Colin will be back for a part two. In the near future, because, uh, yeah, we got, we got a lot more to talk about. We got a lot more to get to, but speaking of getting to things next week on the show, we got to get to another guest from, from, uh, England, you know, from the UK, uh, next week on the show, we have, we're a bit of a departure though. There's someone that, um, no doubt is also a a revolutionary in their, their field, someone that was a, a great builder. In their in their chosen field, and once again, someone that does come from punk rock. But this is one of those ones that dovetails with my other love, pro wrestling. Next week on the show, Jim Smallman, the the one of the people that helped resurrect British wrestling. Like we talk about this, the UK wrestling scene was was dead, and and Jim and a bunch of incredibly talented wrestlers and other bookers basically brought it back and made it a vibrant scene. But Jim Smallman says that it was all thanks to the influence of punk rock that led him to do this. And he actually founded Progress Wrestling, which has branded itself punk rock wrestling and and has recently turned his back on that and announced that he's going to be leaving Progress to work for, for the major label in pro wrestling, like the major label in pro wrestling, the WWE. This is a fascinating conversation not just about pro wrestling, but just about following your dreams and, and working towards your dreams and the power of punk rock. Like this is, this is the type of show that this podcast was meant for, you know, like these, these sorts of episodes, I've wanted to have Jim on this thing since I started this podcast long before I ever met him. And so the fact that it's finally happening, it's a, it's a, it's another one ticked off my checklist, my personal checklist that, uh, you know, I'm I'm still keeping score. So keep score for myself. So that is next week on the show. One of my, one of my most wanted guests, Jim Smallman on turned out a punk. Well, that's it everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Go out there and sign your organ donor cards. Tell all your friends about this podcast. Uh, go and make your own culture. Cause anyone can do this shit and that's it. Uh, stay safe and I will see you all next week.